0: Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. Uh, cultural appropriation, the borrowing, the exchanging, the laundering of traditions and rituals and experiences and clothing from previous generations, from previous centuries even. We're dating all the way back to the Socrates and Plato times where a lot of the things we benefit from now came from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. Cultural appropriation has received, it's a term that's become incredibly popular in recent times, mostly in the social justice realm. But for the sake of this episode, we're going to stick with the definition that was found on good old Google. Cultural appropriation is the inappropriate or unacknowledged adoption of an element or elements of one's culture or identity by members of another culture, or identity. We see examples of this in the media, whether that be fake news or real with, for example, Kim Kardashian wearing cornrows and braids and people from the quote unquote black community. I don't know if that's the politically correct way that they would like to be referred to now, but growing upset with these braids because it is apparently a sign of disrespect and because she borrowed or stole something that is central to the identity of a black individual. In this case, I find that interesting because the original phrase for a braid was a Dutch braid, Dutch coming from Dutch people. So it didn't originate in African culture, but it's become really popular in certain cultures. So in these sort of situations, how do we differentiate between cultural appropriation, cultural appreciation, or simple cultural exchange, which is essentially how we have come to respect and learn about other cultures in modern day. And it's what brings a lot of us together in this nice, what we would love to be a cohesive, compassionate unit of people. But the important piece of appropriation by activists is that It's stealing something from a less dominant culture that the members in that less dominant culture find undesirable, offensive, bigoted, what have you. And it's the misusing of heritage by those in a position of quote unquote power. This is where it becomes convoluted. How do we define power? outside of someone's skin color or someone's title, how do we define privilege outside of one's race or one's whatever status or group they belong to? We can't rely on skin color or your position as a CEO or your title alone to define what power is. It's not as simple and unilateral we don't live in a world where it's that easy to just delineate who's powerful who's not who's oppressor who's oppressed what's what's perplexing about cultural appropriation is that the people who are the ones getting very upset about it and calling out inappropriate instances of cultural appropriation are those that don't even belong to the marginalized group we're going to play a clip here where someone named Will Witt goes to a a group within a reservation about 300 miles north of Phoenix. And he asks the Native Americans in this uh, reservation group if they were offended by things like the, the football team, the Washington Redskins, or the Cleveland Indians, who are now called the Cleveland Guardians because someone, some justice warrior decided that this has to be offensive to Native American people, even though the Native American people will tell you in this clip that they actually found it very cool. Do you find the name Washington Redskins, is that offensive to you? Um, I don't think so. I, in my personal opinion, no. Um, I am a Washington Redskins fan. You know, I don't think it's terrible, you know, because the Redskins actually came down last year to with our Native American people and taught them how to do football, the little kids, you know. I don't find it offensive. Someone came to me and called me a Redskin to my face. Hey, it's my fault for letting that hurt me. So. The Native Americans in this video stated that they are Washington Redskins fans. The Redskins actually came to their reservation to talk to the kids, to play with the kids, to learn more about the culture. If you ask the the founder or any teammate, for that matter, of the Washington Redskins or even the Cleveland Indians how they felt about the name, it is an outward sign of respect for this culture. That's how we honor cultures and people that we love and that we appreciate it. The term imitation is the sincerest form of flattery is gone by the wayside these days because imitation falls under the umbrella of cultural appropriation. What's what's more with, with this theory is that if someone in a marginalized group attempts to behave like a person that is in a dominant culture, so let's just stick with the example of Native Americans. If a Native American woman were to, say, dye her hair blonde and wear bright red lipstick and dress like Marilyn Monroe and attempt to lighten her skin, that would not be appropriation, according to these activists, but it would be assimilation. It would be an act of trying to integrate themselves into the dominant culture. But we've seen repeatedly that, yes, of course, there are signs of of racism still. Of course, there is oppression that exists. And of course, there are disadvantaged groups with Native Americans being an incredibly disadvantaged group. So this isn't me saying that these things are fairy tales and that they don't exist. But what's confusing about this theory is that people from dominant cultures can't are always victims or well offenders of appropriation but those from disadvantaged cultures are are not however going back to actually consulting with the group that is Quote unquote, supposedly being offended by this, they continue to see it as this very cool, very in way of their culture being respected. The same, the same interviewer from the first clip, Will Witt, he spoke with a woman and her, I think her grandmother or her mother about Chinese culture, because he was wearing, um, a traditional Chinese male outfit. And he was asking people in Chinatown where he lived, if they were offended by what he was wearing in this clip, you're going to hear that they were not in fact offended. And they will give us some advice as to who can and who cannot appropriate do you have to be chinese to wear this you don't have to anybody can wear what do you think of my outfit uh you really like it yeah looks good good it's fascinating fascinating perplexing infuriating and albeit comical (laughs) that that the culture themselves as this woman stated in this video Anybody can wear it. Anybody could wear a kimono. Anybody could wear anything that is of, that originates in China. Anyone can eat or consume anything that is Chinese. It is fair game, no matter what race, what skin color, what what power status you are. It's for everybody. And when people within the culture themselves, so Native Americans or Chinese people using these two examples, they're flattered by this imitation like i like i said earlier they find it to be the utmost sign of respect for their culture and they find it to be very inclusive of their culture when other people or dominant cultures want to be a part of it this would be different if the, there were racial slurs or something actually offensive in there but quite typically the culture themselves doesn't find anything offensive about the social justice warrior version of appropriation. So when people have no connection to the culture, like let's say a young college student who has just learned about college, uh, college, (laughs) um, cultural appropriation and isn't part of native American or Chinese or, or whatever culture they seem not to be upset in an attempt to protect or preserve the culture, but they seem more pissed that the culture isn't offended. It's all this one big cluster of power grabbing and grandstanding and at an attempt to turn very innocent events into these cries for activism or or making them more of a racialized issue when they don't have to be in this next clip here, Dr. Phil had a great episode on cultural appropriation, where most of the people in the audience were reporting from both sides. So there were people that have accused others of cultural appropriation that have felt personally offended by acts of appropriation that they've seen. And then they had people who were part of disadvantaged, if you want to call it that, or marginalized groups or minority groups that didn't see anything wrong with the borrowing of culture. So there was a half Black woman in the audience who who used the exact phrase, imitation is a form of flattery. And she claimed repeatedly that there was nothing about someone wearing braids or someone wearing cornrows or someone wearing their pants really baggy that, that wasn't black, she found nothing wrong with any piece of this. We're going to play this clip here from from Dr. Phil himself. I've researched this a fair amount, um, and it it really is interesting that people from the culture oftentimes are supportive of this and think it's inclusive and uh, puts that forward and they're flattered by it. And those outside the culture are terribly offended. This clip and the episode as a whole, if if you really wanted to dig into it, I will include it in the show notes for everybody. There were a lot of claims of this power imbalance and how yes minority groups can appropriate but we don't hear much about minority groups appropriating it's usually white people that are wearing a headdress for you know a native american headdress as a halloween costume or kim kardashian wearing braids and cornrows to uh, to a red carpet or met gala event so it's these very innocent instances of behavior where we're just trying to have fun. We're trying to look pretty. We may even try to look funny, but in a way that is also not disparaging to the group itself. And this is something comedy has really suffered pretty tremendously from is this idea of punching up versus punching down this term terms. I should say originated in comedy when dominant culture comedians aka mostly white comedians felt like they could not make any single joke about any single racial group because it was an act of punching down which means that it inherently was an act of racism or oppression or 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 prejudice but these anybody could make fun of white people because they're dominant and if we're punching up anything is fair game we see this a lot with Feminist groups that talk incessantly uh, about how the men have ruined our society or the patriarchy. And that's completely fine because it's punching up because these people believe that as women, we are disadvantaged and therefore making fun of someone of higher status than us is not in fact making fun. It's more a reparative action, if you will. As with many of these issues we find ourselves in the middle of, or at least witnesses of, it's usually one or two or even five people that get offended that are part of a group. And they assume that the entire group must also feel the exact same way. So maybe there was a native American who felt like the Washington Redskins was offensive. Maybe there was a native American who felt like chief Wahoo, that little Indian guy cartoon looked like a drunken fool. And that was making fun of the fact that alcoholism Uh, has very high rates within the Native American community. That has absolutely been claimed before, and that might even be a fair claim. But do they speak for the entire group? According to the first clip that we listened to, no. So why do we feel like our views on things speak for an entire mass? Why do we feel like us being offended means that we are correct? In the realm of appropriation, cultural exchange is, in my opinion, cultural appropriation. So while appropriation has a negative connotation, exchange is how our world functions. It's how we evolve, and it's how we learn about how other people think, behave, love, and spend their time. Things like tea, gunpowder, pasta, hot dogs, they've been shared between All kinds of different cultures, many of which have not originated in America. And is that appropriation? Is it appreciation? Or is it simply just the act of life and how we move forward with borrowing things that we benefit from, borrowing things that bring us joy, and borrowing things that make our society as a whole function better and that bring us together? biologically, we're these social creatures that always crave cohesiveness and wanting to be somewhat within this big unit that operates as one versus very individualistic societies like America. But if we look at things like traumatic events, let's say war or Hurricane Katrina or a natural disaster, we find that people actually report less depression because they felt some sort of bonding between them. I feel like something similar happens with, if you want to call it appropriation, we could call it that. But when we exchange traditions and rituals, that's our way of sharing respect and showing reciprocity, which is how groups are able to withstand really difficult times. While we're on the topic of pasta and all of the delicious things that us Americans enjoy, let's dive into all of the things that we take advantage of in this country and all the things that we enjoy in this country that did not, in fact, originate here. Coffee is an arabic word. Coffee, that delicious, piping hot mug of liquid that if you're like me, you drink at all times of the day, can even be a bedtime snack for me, did not originate in America. The person who owns and found, or founded Starbucks, he's not arabic. Should we petition that Starbucks be taken down? Should we petition that none of us be allowed to buy coffee because it's a sign of pilfering? I don't think so. That sounds it sounds ridiculous. It sounds irrational. But that's what cultural appropriation claims in a lot of ways. Or they might come back with something like, well, consumption isn't appropriation. It's just when someone opens the store and sells the culture's delicacy that then that's a problem. There was, I, I can't remember the names of these two um, white males who had been chefs their whole lives, and this was in California. They wanted to open a, a taqueria, so a, a, a Hispanic kind of food truck that mostly served um, tacos and burritos and things of that nature, and they were absolutely socially destroyed How dare you serve Mexican food if you are not Mexican? Whereas these same people who are not Mexican are enjoying Mexican food and it's completely fine. That's where the logic of this theory just, it it is so far away from what is reality that it, it still kind of blows my mind. Same thing with hot dogs. While the actual origin of hot dogs is has never been known we know for sure that it did not originate in america it originated somewhere in europe there are theories that it was either in belgium or austria or germany again its exact location its exact birth of the hot dog it still has yet to be defined but we do know that this popular ballpark treat that many of us love, many of us grow up on hot dogs. Honestly, they're one of the quickest, easiest, and most delicious meals we'll eat are not from here. This is an especially interesting one because we hear a lot that white Europeans are the dominant culture just as white Americans are. We hear a lot that white Europeans are colonizers the same way that white Americans inherently are. So in this case, would eating a hot dog, if you're a minority, would that be assimilation? Would that be you trying to uh, more deeply integrate yourself into Western culture, but European culture also falls under the Western world too. So to kind of sit here and split hairs over who could open a hot dog restaurant or stand and who can't seems like a complete waste of time given the issues that we're facing in society, especially now. What do we put on a hot dog? Well, for me, I'm from Chicago, so we don't put ketchup on hot dogs. It's an outlawed here. It's an unwritten rule. I do, because I love ketchup. But ketchup did not originate here. It originated in Southeast Asia. Am I appropriating when I put ketchup on literally everything I eat? Is McDonald's appropriating by by giving you 900 ketchup packets with your fries and your chicken nuggets? Are restaurants here, all the ones that aren't Asian, Should they take Heinz off of the menu? Should Walmart take Heinz off of its shelf? And if we ask someone from Chinese culture, are you upset that we use ketchup? I don't, I'm assuming they would say no, because we're sharing, we're exchanging things because that's what we do. That's what the world is about. Children do it, too. Children share traditions. Children share rituals. Children befriend other kids that are from other cultures. And those families typically readily welcome that child into their culture. In middle school, I had a lot of Jewish friends. I'm not Jewish, and I knew very little about the culture, but I was invited on several occasions to attend Friday Shabbat, and I learned all about Jewish culture. There At that time, too, a lot of people were having bar and bat mitzvahs. That was something that I was completely... Not unaware of, but uneducated about beyond the the party itself, except when we would uh, watch these people be, I guess, their rite of passage into some form of adulthood or adult childhood through reading the Torah. Um, but. Even in my professional career recently, I worked with an Orthodox Jewish company where I had to dress completely differently and even cover my hair on some occasions. And they readily welcomed me into their culture because I was willing to learn about it. If we go back to children adopting different cultures and exchanging different rituals, we think about a delicious childhood meal the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I hate to break it to you guys. Peanut butter originated in ancient Inca and Aztec times. So it is as old literally as time. And I don't see people trying to protest that Jiffy or Skippy be taken off of the shelves. If anything, we're more upset about the fact that there might be peanut allergies. So that's the reason why peanut butter sandwiches have been banned from schools. Not the fact that we might be appropriating the, the food developed by people uh, that that's not part of our cult- culture. Moving beyond the consumption of food, which is such a huge part of cultures and, and what we share, we move into entertainment. Recently, The Simpsons have announced that they will no longer use white actors to voice non-white actors. So other white voice actors who used to play the part of a black character, they recuse themselves from the show. Some of them got so much blowback from this whole cultural appropriation crowd that they decided to just step out entirely from their role within The Simpsons, even those that that had been there for, for decades at a time. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that... Of course, there are offensive ways that we could voice a character. There are ways that we could pretend to speak like we're somebody else that are purposely meant to be offensive and they're purposely meant to be derogatory or disparaging. So I'm sure that that exists. And we've we probably all witnessed it. We may even have taken part in it, whether it was a joke or whether it was intentional, uh, intentionally hurting someone. Those are things that absolutely exist in light of things like the Simpsons or Archer or, or Rick and Morty or any other show, any other voiceover show will take Disney animated movies, for example, think about Moana. I don't know who was the voice actor for Moana. I don't know if she was, um, Polynesian or Hawaii or of, or of Hawaiian descent. I really have no idea. But in that case, would it be entirely fair to say that if the person was, you know, the the woman who sang for Elsa, Adina Menzel, if Adina Menzel was the one singing Moana, would she be charged with the social justice crime of appropriation? I don't know because I would think that Polynesian culture would probably find it an act an absolute beautiful homage to their culture because people are recognizing it and it's being shared and it's being loved and appreciated by so many people, especially children that could also open the door to educating themselves about how people in different places of the world behave and think and conduct themselves. There are obvious signs of inappropriate cultural appropriation. One of Actually, the only one that is the prime example of where this is racist, we'll just say that it's racist, was the use of blackface. Blackface was used in the 19th century in minstrel shows, and white people would put black makeup on their face in this really disgusting-looking kind of almost clown-like way, and they would kind of dance around as if they were dunces and they would be purposely behave uh, like they were clowns because they were trying to ridicule black people. That is obvious racism. Nobody's saying that that's not racism. Nobody is saying that that's not cruel. Even for that time period, when racism was probably much more apparent than it is now, it is still disgusting to treat people that way. It's still disgusting to assume anything about anybody based on their skin color alone modern day blackface. Rachel Dolezal, you guys might remember this name, was a white woman who has, I think, Swedish and German descent, but she was born to two white parents. And she was a former college instructor that started to darken her skin Um, put a bunch of cornrows and extension braids in her hair. She changed her voice tone and she presented herself as black. And she told people that she was African-American. She was part of the National Association for Advancement of Colored People. And she was the chapter president. Now, this is a really important example of where the obsession with skin color and race and appropriation And these really rigid guidelines of culture uh, tend to clash. Could a white person be the president for the advancement of quote unquote colored people? I believe that they can. I think if you take the time to appreciate uh, the disadvantages um, and the hardships that people face and that you want to champion these people by listening to their experiences and helping to create more equal opportunity for these people of course i don't think that the president has to be any sort of skin color because to me that's also just racist to kind of continue to segregate into these groups do i think that having a black president in something like this would be helpful in terms of maybe some sort of role model or they give more insight and experience to other black members Of course, it would be the same thing for the group of Native Americans in the reservation that we first touched on at the beginning of the episode. So this isn't to say that there should never be groups that congregate together and share the experiences of one another. Because to me, that's what this whole idea of appropriation actually is. It's cultural exchange. I think when it gets harmful and divisive is when we demand that certain skin colors can't be a part of things. So do I necessarily think that Rachel Dolezal was trying to hurt black people by doing all of this? Maybe not directly. I think that there were pieces of her that realized playing a black person uh, came with its benefits Imagine Rachel Dolezal in 2022, when so much of our culture is hyper-focused on uh, white people taking reparative action, she probably would have benefited even more in modern day than she did back then. She claims that her little brothers who were adopted from Africa were somehow this weird inspiration for her, I guess, to want to play black because she never felt white. And nowadays she could very much appropriate a race. We appropriate almost everything else. We have biological males dressing as women and that's acceptable. We have biological women dressing as men. We have biological men playing in women's sports. We have people dressing up like native Americans for Halloween. Jeffrey Dahmer was everybody's favorite Halloween costume this year following the Netflix series. It's these exchanges that we make in our culture because that's part of what we do. It's, It's not always an attempt to be somebody else. And you know what? If for people that do that badly want to be somebody else... Isn't that worth investigating? Isn't that worth asking that person what it is about themselves that they feel is not acceptable instead of just shaming them or instead of just making it a lecture series as part of the social justice doctrine that says you can't ever wear anything from a different culture? I would think that would open the door to a really fascinating conversation versus something that's more of. Uh, punitive action. But to end Rachel Dole's also story, she was found out because on air, a reporter asked her, Are you African American? And she just kept trying to dance around the question, saying things. I don't understand that question. I, re- I don't understand. And the reporter kept saying, Are you black or are you white? Are you Russian or are you African American? And she just kept saying, I just don't understand the question. I just don't get it. And that's when people started digging into her history. They found her birth certificate saying that she was, I think, Swedish and German, as I had mentioned, and that the people she claimed to be her dad were actually her adopted black brothers. So that obviously looked horrible. It obviously looked as if she was using this persona to gain some sort of either social popularity. I don't know if there were financial benefits to it, but that's more of a gray area topic than straight up blackface, which is obviously racist. Let's use an even more nuanced example. We move to Keziah Dom. She was a white girl, teenager, in Utah who found a red kimono in, I think it was a thrift store and she thought it was gorgeous. She thought it was beautiful. It fit her perfectly. So she decided to wear it to her prom. As soon as she started posting pictures, she got in (laughs) modern day fashion, Twitter attacked, Instagram attacked, Facebook attacked, Reddit attacked. One of her um, biggest fans and by fans, I mean, attackers was a boy named Andrew who was Chinese. He was born here. His family was born here. So I just wanted to point that out. And he claimed repeatedly, my culture is not your fucking prom dress. And he goes on to say, I am incredibly proud of my culture for it to simply be subject to American consumerism and cater to a white audience is parallel to colonial ideology. So a Chinese person whose entire family was born in America, he was born in America, who has admitted that they don't practice any of these sorts of Chinese cultures. I don't, why is he getting so upset? Makes you wonder Is it actually that he's upset because he thinks this is a slight against Chinese culture, or is he upset because cultural appropriation is popular and it gives you a chance to grandstand amongst your group to be upset about something that you assume Chinese people or native Americans or whoever would be upset about. But when all of this reached Asia, Chinese people we're very confused by Andrew being so upset. They were the opposite of critical of Kazia Dom. They, they were proud to have their culture recognized by people in other countries. They actually invited her to China. It, it wasn't called a kimono. I'm going to pronounce this the wrong way, but it was called a qi dress the, the high necked, um, kimono-looking dress, they invited her to a chi-pao gathering or a chi-pao, not ritual, but congregation where they give away these dresses to other people to show their appreciation for them. And Zhu Yijun, a Hong Kong-based cultural commentator, also said that it is insane to criticize Kizaya for cultural appropriation. From the perspective of a Chinese person, he claims, if a foreign woman wears a Chipao and thinks she looks pretty, then why shouldn't she wear it? So this is how the Chinese people saw this whole thing. So when you ask them, they say, what's the big deal? I don't understand what the problem is. When you ask people that aren't even part of Chinese culture, they say, oh my gosh, this is the most offensive thing I've ever seen. Is it not offensive to pretend to be upset for other people that you've never even spoken to? Is it not entitled to try to speak for a different culture that you know nothing about? Dr. Neil Lester, a professor at Arizona State University, thinks not. He thinks that appropriation is, quote unquote, intersectional, so anybody can be a perpetrator of appropriation. Anybody, no matter what age, no matter what race, no matter what gender. He he uses the example of old people appropriating young people, men appropriating women, teachers appropriating celebrities, all of these things that he believes everybody as a whole is guilty of. So nobody gets out alive in terms of the appropriation battle. He also states that someone's culture becoming a performance is reductive, and he thinks that using... So, using the example of Kazaya, he thinks that using the cheap how or wearing the chiepao is performative, and it's only as a means of gaining some sort of social capital. So he believed that Kazaya intentionally made a devi- devised this premeditated plan to: I am going to go prom dress shopping. I will only buy a dress that is, I guess, culturally not American, because I think that it will make me rank higher in social popularity, which is obviously ridiculous. Are there some people that might do that? Sure, we could argue that Rachel Dolezal did that, but a 17 year old in high school who thinks that a red dress looks pretty on her, which it undoubtedly did if you saw the pictures, thinking that this was a perfect way to win prom queen is absolutely ridiculous. When Dr. Neil Lester was also on Dr. Phil for the cultural appropriation episode, Dr. Phil asked him, even if someone was trying to gain cultural capital by wearing something culturally not their own, who is harmed by that? Dr. Neil Lester had a hard time answering this question. He said it's not about harm, and I will let Dr. Phil and Dr. Neil Lester invite you into their line of thinking. Wow, so, do you so, really put those on the same level? I absolutely racism do. Racism and sexism you put it on the same level as, as cultural appropriation. That's exactly. So if somebody wears their hair like you're wearing it, you put that on the same level as as racism. Absolutely. I put that on the same Uh. level as white supremacy because white supremacy is intersectional. You could hear it in Dr. Phil's voice. The almost disgust in hearing someone speak in such an entitled manner that wearing braids is not only cultural appropriation, but it's white supremacy. Come on. Wearing a kimono is not cultural appropriation or appreciation. It is white supremacy. Everything with these groups tends to come back to the fact that this must be white supremacy or some weird glaring sign of internalized oppression. This makes me think of the disability culture that we're in and how People are self-diagnosing themselves with autism, the same way Rachel Dolezal made herself black. People are making themselves autistic, and by making themselves, I mean pretending to be. Like, you, there's literally nothing that exists. There's no pills you could take, or uh, you know, radioactive exposure <laughs> you could undergo to change the neurology of your brain to go from neurotypical to autistic. So when I say make yourself with air quotes, I'm referring to the mere act of stating that you are autistic when you're not. I'm going, I'm referring to the groups that say they have borderline personality disorder when they do not. I'm referring to the hordes of people who forget things sometimes and saying they have ADHD when in fact they do not. If we go back to the definition of appropriation, the inappropriate or unacknowledged adoption or element of someone's culture or identity, isn't borrowing a disability an inappropriate adoption? Isn't pretending to be mentally ill or disabled when you're not? How is that the how is that not the most inappropriate adoption of an identity piece because historically if we made fun of people who were disabled that was that was more than disgusting that was a more than appalling even now it is more than disgusting and appalling how could you make fun of people that are are born with things that they have no control over that make their lives so wildly difficult I don't understand how you could ever make fun of somebody with a disability, but in this way, I take it as you are, in a way, making fun of, or at least minimizing the disability. Because when we see people posting four hundred times a day on social media that they're an ADHDer, and oh my gosh, I didn't take my meds, so I only sent ten email. I only sent twenty emails today instead of seventy five oh my gosh, my my life is so hard. I would think that that would be insulting to people that literally can't have social media and can't express their thoughts on social media because of their disability. I would think that the autistic advocates who are demanding certain words and phrases be interchanged or erased entirely are and attempting to speak for all autistic people, I would think that that is a very insulting means of behaving amongst all of these autistic people who can't speak at all. So because people with disabilities are now considered this marginalized or disadvantaged or protected population, if you do join these groups by hashtagging yourself as hashtag actually autistic or hashtag adhd -er, is it your attempt to try to benefit from this title? It seems that way. And like Dr. Neil Lester said, if we're really trying to find common ground with this guy, yeah, there are times when we see the benefit in being somebody that we are not in 2022. It is more beneficial than ever (laughs) to be somebody else, especially if you're white. So, if we can join a group that makes us look disadvantaged, if we could join a group that places this buffer against our you know, inherent colonizer status, most people find that very tempting, especially those that are fearful of speaking out against any of these issues, or especially for people that are fearful of criticizing or even giving feedback to people that are of quote unquote protected status. But again, how is that not appropriation? How is that not an outward stealing and thieving of an identity just so that you could feel better about yourself? I think the difference for me with exchange of culture and appropriation is that things like wearing a kimono, consuming Chinese food, learning about Jewish culture, Uh, being invited into a mosque, let's say, and taking a backseat so that we can understand what it's like to, to go about our day as if we're a different culture, because we want to show respect to these people. That is the utmost sign of respect to me. Acting like you're something that you're not for the sake of making yourself feel better for the sake of self-benefit and for the sake of not learning anything. I think that is, it goes beyond appropriation. I think that is just cruel. And to use Dr. Neil Lester's word, I think it's a reductive and minimizing way to carry on um, about ourselves and and our view of the world. If, If things are that simple to where we could say, I'm autistic, this is my support for autistic people. And we don't think that that's along the same lines as blackface or Rachel Dolezal. I think that we have a lot of introspection to do. But alas, we're here trying to survive shoulder to shoulder with people who are the same color, a different color, the same age, a different race, a different age. We are all our own being, but we're always trying to find ways to act in a cohesive manner. It's human nature to want to be somewhat like-minded with the people we surround ourselves with. The general case for appropriation, aside from the examples of the obvious stealing of identity, is that appropriation is appreciation and that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I hope you guys enjoyed today. Please don't forget to give us a review so that my ego can survive another episode